Beginning of the year, it's January, uh, like Don shared, praise the Lord, it's been warm for a couple of days, see the snow melts, we can get a fresh batch, you know, tomorrow, or whatever. Um, I like to clear off the old and forget the new one. Uh, It's January, which means typically around here we're going to be talking about vision. And uh, when we're talking about vision, you know, a lot of times what we do is we emphasize how we can see, right, getting some vision, how God can work through us and what God might have out there in front of us that we can strive to work towards and to be a part of understanding God's vision. But sometimes when we talk about vision, uh, it's just simply understanding what God says and maybe more specifically what God expects. And so with that in mind, I just want to remind you of a a premise that we kind of laid out last week, and, and that's this, that is if you are saved. If you've given your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've received the free gift of salvation. If you know that your home is heaven when this life is over, you need to understand that God expects each and every one of you to grow to full maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the mindset that it's okay to you know, just grow a little bit and the, the real full mature leadership is only for the select few that have some extra spiritual gene in their DNA or something that makes them pastors and teachers and missionaries and leaders uh, is just not uh, supportable biblically. God expects the same thing from each and every one of us. In fact, anything less than that literally is retarded growth. And and when you think about your growth being hindered or retarded, you know, we, we, unlike physical growth, retardation which frequently comes as no fault of anybody it's just a it's a biological issue that somebody has to deal with or whatever you got to understand that in your spiritual life in the body of Christ there is nothing hindering you from growing to full maturity except you Jesus wants it and his body is pure and holy and clean and right he doesn't have any genetic defects in his body Now, last week we took some time and we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and we're not going to go back there again today, but if you remember when we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, it emphasized this um, theme of growing in Christ, and it talked about how we should not be any more children. It, It talked about how we need to grow up unto Him. It talked about the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And how that really is full maturity. And God has given to the body of the church some specific gifts, among which are pastors and teachers that are given to help the body grow, to help the body be built up or edified to this level of full maturity. And I just want to remind you before we head off into our subject for the day, a verse in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 where it says this, "...obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves." For they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And I'm not trying to beat you over the head with obey me. I'm just trying to say God gave gifts to the body of the church to help you grow. And he put hints all the way through the scriptures to remind you that it is your duty to get on board and be a part of what God wants to do. Our text for today is in the book of 2 Peter. So it's near the end of your Bible. If you haven't found it yet, please open your Bibles to 2 Peter. And we're going to read through the first 11 verses. Now let me just tell you as we're about to go through this, this morning in the the time that we have remaining, I'm going to be sharing with you a very brief taste of what we study in great detail in our ministry tools and training class. In fact, right now at this time on Thursday nights, this is the class that I'm teaching. In fact, it, it's an overlap from the previous class 
about growth in the Lord and discipleship. And basically, we spend about 40 hours of study going through the details of stuff like this. I'm going to try and give it to you in about 45 minutes, okay? So there's a lot of information. This is a, this is a real Bible study, and so just hang on the best you can, and uh, let's, see, let's see what we can see. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Let me just say, have you obtained like precious faith? Have you been saved? Then this applies to you. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Stop there for just a second. We'll continue reading in a second. Let me just point out to you in verse number four, these promises, this, this, this equipping that God makes available to us. He says it's given to us these great promises. Why? That we might be partakers of the divine nature. Uh, the divine nature would be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, living like Jesus Christ. Let's just say that that's the New Testament equivalent of just saying it full maturity. And, and it says that you might be partakers because it's going to be conditional based on what you will do. Will you cooperate with God? Will you respond to the plan that he has for you? The, the context of this passage and the reason I chose it is this is all about the steps that take you to full maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an awesome Bible study. Let's continue verse number five. And besides this, giving all diligence, see we have to do something on our part, we have to be diligent, add to your faith virtue and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He has a problem with his vision. And hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to diligently pursue these things. And the idea of diligence is, is steady application, constant effort, not quitting. Continuing to pursue these things. Seven things added to our faith. That's really, really important. And so there's a lot here to study, so let's just take a second and pray that God will give us understanding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do just ask in Jesus' name that as we walk through these principles in your scripture, that you will help us to see the path, that we can understand this is divine revelation. This is your word. You have given this to us to understand how to walk, where to place our next foot step on the journey. And I pray, Lord, as we look into the mirror of your word, that we would see ourselves and try and better understand where we're at along this journey. And wherever it is, it's cool, but it just helps us to understand what's next. And I pray that you would give us this understanding. Lord, you please come 
be our teacher. Help us to just resign whatever it is of ourselves that might be remaining. Let your Holy Spirit fill us and that we might receive with joy what it is you have. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing that we're going to see, and again, they are seven steps, seven steps to full maturity. The first one is virtue. And again, we go into great detail in our class. I'm going to give them to you very quickly, but um, you know, there's a lot of different ways you might want to define virtue and look it up in the dictionary and all that sort of thing. Just a very simple, common understanding of what virtue is, is just simply uh, doing what you know to do and ceasing what you know to cease. <laughs> in other words, do the right thing and stop doing the wrong thing. That's a very common definition. Okay, But that's what virtue is. And God very clearly says that the very first thing that you are to add to your faith, your faith, the like precious faith, that's your saving faith. The moment you got saved, you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are then immediately to add to your faith among all this list, the very first thing is virtue. You know how it plays out? Here's the thing. As soon as you get saved... And everybody's different. Some people get saved when they're very young. Some people are older. I was kind of in the middle. I was 21. But in my life, when I got saved at age 21, I didn't grow up in church. I never understood. I never had a Bible. I'd never read it. I didn't know the stories. I had no Christian background whatsoever. And yet still, having no Bible knowledge, but having received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation, you know what happened? I immediately knew that there was some stuff I was doing that needed to stop. I immediately knew that there was stuff that I never cared about that now I was interested in. Okay, so 21 years of my life, about the last five, from about 16 to 21, I had gotten into a pretty uh, fair proficiency of doing bad things. Let me just say it that way. And and so I have been through some tough times. I don't want to glorify the sin, but I, you know, I was, some people say, you know, you talk about experimenting with drugs. I was kind of into full-fledged research. Um, I, you know, I, I had some bad things. I'm not making, I'm not, listen, it's, it was just bad. And you know, when I got saved, I just knew immediately that was wrong and just stopped. It was, a mirror, it was awesome. God changed my life. But it wasn't just that. I mean, you know, drugs and drinking and that kind of stuff. But you know what? I kind of had some foul language. And God just cleaned that up. You know what? I, I had a habit of, and this hurts some of y'all's feelings. I hope not. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, I, I had a habit of listening to a certain style of music that was evil, quite frankly. And uh, I just realized, man, that's not honoring the Lord. I never read the Bible verse that said, throw away your records, but I did. I mean, I just, there's just some things happened. I mean, it was just natural. It was just what I was going to do. And, and immediately, your life has changed. It's the, it's, the, it's the reaction to the grace of God coming into your life. You place your faith in Him, and you realize, wow, I was on my way to hell. Now I'm on my way to heaven. This is awesome. What can I do? And you're a new creature, the Bible says. And without having studied, without knowing the Scripture, immediately, there's virtue. Immediately, you want to do what's right, and you want to stop doing what's wrong. And I had no discernment in my mind between different Christian groups, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Baptist, Assembly of God, Methodist, whatever they were. I was on a college campus and somebody said Jesus and I showed up. I mean, I got it. I could have got some bad teaching and all that stuff somehow or another. I don't understand how. God protected me. Imagine that. And I just showed up where anybody said Jesus, man. If they were praying, I was showing up. If they were talking about the Lord, I was showing up. 
And, and it was just because I had this sincere desire to do what was right. Man, I was, I'm 21 years behind the curve, man. I got some catching up to do. And so I jumped in with both feet. And that's because he changed my life. You know, it's a really good example of a demonstration of a virtuous response to the gospel. Now, right at the very, very beginning, I didn't understand it, but very early on, I understood very quickly that one thing God expects of all of us is to be baptized in water after we've been saved. And you know what? Baptism in water, if you took the time to think, and it's, it's a cool Bible study to understand it fully, but even if you don't understand it fully and you just know, this is what God wants you to do. You're saved now. Get dunked. It doesn't make you saved. It's just, it's just a testimony. I get it. But for somebody to sit there and say, nah, is that virtuous? You see, the first thing you must add to your faith is virtue. And baptism is such a, I mean, it's kind of, listen, just between me and you and all the people listening on tape, <laughs> it's kind of a weird request. I mean, you're like, okay, get dunked, but it doesn't have anything to do with my salvation, but God wants me to do it. Why would he want me to do something like this? It's a little unusual if you never grew up in church like I didn't. Well, you say, well, that's the whole point. The point is, is that are you just willing in your heart? Is, you, is your attitude toward God sensitive and open enough to just do whatever God says, even if it doesn't make sense to you? Even if it seems like, okay, yeah, whatever, I don't need that. Really? That's not virtuous. And he wants us to be virtuous. If you took the time and said, okay, so what does a virtuous life really look like? Well, God doesn't have, leave it to us to guess or to pick and choose on our own. God describes for us very clearly what a virtuous life looks like. You might want to just jot down in your notes 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1. And in those places, what we have is a long list of character qualities that before a man is ordained as a bishop or a pastor, he has to meet these qualities. But basically all it is is God's description of full maturity, God's description of what a virtuous life looks like. And among that list of things that he looks for, he says, look, you should be blameless. You should be the husband of one wife. You should be vigilant. You should be sober. You should be of good behavior. You should be hospitable. You should be apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, not a brawler, not covetous. And the list goes on. And that's what God expects. That's what virtue is. That's what he wants us to do. That's the life he wants. Now, if you're a brand new Christian, it might take some time before you understand what God wants. That's fine. But whatever it is you know, when you walked in the doors today, you know something. Whatever it is you know, are you doing that? Because if you're not, and you know it already, then you're struggling at the level of virtue, which is the very first thing that God expects you to add to your faith. The second thing is knowledge. And this is where people get messed up, and this is a great revelation. Listen, knowledge, very simply is just the process of gaining more information. Just very simply. It's just getting more, getting more information, right? So you go to school and you go to college and you do whatever you do and you get more information about stuff and all that's good. Get an education, do well, learn stuff, don't be dumb. For sure, that's great. But understand something. Ultimately, in your spiritual growth, it's critically important that you get the right truth. It's important because you can't possibly do the right thing unless you know the right thing to do, right? So you have to know what God expects so you know how to respond to that. John chapter 17 and verse number 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. 
So God's Word is the source of all truth. And Word is small w, by the way. That's specifically referring to the Scriptures, the written Word of God. And Bible even says in Proverbs chapter 22 how God has written to us excellent things to give us knowledge that we could know the certainty of the words of truth. It's objective, it's right, it's certain. You could shut your Bible, go back to it next week, and it's still right there because it's written. And that's where we receive our truth. That's where we get the right knowledge. But not only that, not only that, because, okay, you say you got your Bible, it's on your lap, you got several copies in your house, good for you. Uh, you got to study it, man. I mean, the Bible says in 2 Timothy that you have to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so it's your duty to study God's word. That's more than just reading it every so often. That's more than just listening to somebody else talk about it. It's study. Those of you who can remember back in school, okay, I mean, we had to sit down with books, you had to memorize, you had to cross-reference, you had to do what you do, and that's what God expects. If we're going to get the knowledge, we've got to study. One of our MTT classes is how to study the Bible. Great tools to help you get that. But not only that, because in order to gain this knowledge, we already saw last week in Ephesians 4 and in many other places in the Bible that God gives to us a gift And that gift is teachers, people who have studied more that can open up the scriptures and can expose to you the clear truths of the Bible. And so God gives us the teachers. And when he gives us the teachers, then we can take advantage of that. Here's what I want to point out in all that. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 1, this is big, really. If you get nothing else, get this today. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it does not say, add to your faith virtue and add to your faith knowledge. It does not say, add to your faith knowledge. It says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Why is that? Because most times what happens is somebody gets saved and they show up in church and they just sit and they listen and you learn. You're intelligent people and you soak stuff in and you got a lot of info and we live in an information age and you can Google anything and you can learn whatever you want and you read books and you get a lot of knowledge. But if it's not built on the foundation of a virtuous life that is committed to doing whatever you know to do, then the knowledge will hurt you. It'll hurt you. Because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that knowledge puffs up. It'll give you a big head. It'll make you proud. It'll make you carnal. The right knowledge can make you carnal without virtue. You get critical of others. You sit back and and you point fingers at how everybody else isn't doing what they should be doing right because you've got knowledge. Oh, are you doing it? You know what I've learned in church leadership for 20 years now? Is that the people who complain the most are people who don't do anything. But they have knowledge. They're smart people. They're like Job's friends. If you read that story of Job, his miserable counselor friends, the words they spoke were accurate words. They're just misapplied to Job. And so they have knowledge, but they don't have virtue. People who are in the trenches with you pulling to get the job done typically don't complain. We're just busy working to get it done, man. God says add to your faith virtue and add to virtue knowledge. That's important because you need to understand something about knowledge. Knowledge is not offered to you by God simply for knowledge's sake. 
You're not offered knowledge just so that you can have this cool tool that you can pull out of your pocket at a party and impress your friends. God gives you knowledge, not for knowledge's sake, but for virtue's sake. So that as your understanding increases of God's requirements, so does your behavior change more to be in line with those requirements. Yes, as you're a brand new Christian, you don't know much, but you do what you know. God gives you more understanding so that you apply even more. It's what he expects. It's that we all grow to full maturity. Remember where I quoted John 17, 17? Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. By the way, the first word in that sentence, sanctify them. Sanctify them. Make them right, holy, set apart. Give them virtue through their truth. See, they've got to be added in order. The next thing in the list is temperance. Temperance. Now, temperance might be simply understood as moderation. Uh, Temperance is something that uh, we need to apply. For example, we all need to eat, but we don't need to overeat, right? You should temper the amount of food you take in and the kinds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Temperance is moderation. It carries with it the idea of self-control or discipline. Temperance has to do with the ability to say no to certain things. And it has the ability to say no to certain things, basically even, even good things, so that you can say yes to the very best things. Temperance is discipline. Temperance is self-control. Temperance has to do with making choices. So I define temperance like this. I say that it's the process of consciously making choices to the exclusion of many other choices. Here's how it plays out. You're virtuous. You've demonstrated that you're willing to do what God shows you. Then you begin to study, and you're very soon into the world of Bible study. Many of you already already experienced this. Some of you are on the front end of it. Very soon, listen, this book is full of all kind of truth. It's eternal. It's endless. It's the mind of Christ. Before too long, you become overwhelmed with so much knowledge and so much understanding of things that God has available for us that it just blows you away and you could not possibly do all the things that you know. So you got to make some choices. You have to make real choices. You need temperance. Temperance is added to knowledge, which is added to virtue. You've got to make some choices in your life that allows you the discipline to be able to say no. For sure, no to the sinful things, but no to even some good things so that you're free to say yes to the very best things and understand your niche, understand where you fit, understand what ministry is going to be your ministry. You couldn't possibly do all the ministries and God points out all the different needs that there are and yet you pick the one or two that best fit you to be the most fruitful in your life. That's what temperance is all about. That's what God wants us to understand. Temperance is among the lists in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. A Spirit-filled life demonstrates demonstrates temperance. 1 Corinthians 9, I love this definition. It says in verse 25, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible So the illustration is that of athletics. 
and a guy's in the Olympic Games or whatever it might be, and he's striving for the mastery. In other words, he wants to win the championship. Okay? And in the ancient Olympic Games, they would put this crown of, you know, a wreath of, of leaves or whatever on your head, and they're like, okay, they work hard to get some recognition about being the best in their field, and all they get is just this ring of leaves on their head. But we're doing it to get an incorruptible, eternal crown. So you make the comparison and you say, striving for the mastery? Well, in our spiritual lives, the mastery is full maturity in Christ, is it not? It's full growth and maturity and fruitfulness in Christ. So anyone that's going to strive for the mastery has to be temperate in all things. That means that in your life, you take a good hard look at all the things that God has already done in your life. You take a good hard look at all the things that you know He expects of you. And you start making choices. And your choices are going to mean that, hey, if I'm going to take the next step to continue to grow with Christ, I'm going to ha- I don't, just don't have time. There's not enough time in the day. I'm going to have to say no to some things. They may be fine things. They may be good things. Because I want the best things. That's what I want in my life. Do you strive for the mastery? If you were in an athletic competition and or, or you just got to the point where you're like, look, I need to start working out. I mean, life's getting past me, and boy, I need some help. So I'm going to start working out or whatever. And listen, you're not going to do all the sports. There's so many sports available, you couldn't even dream of them all. But you pick one or two that you really enjoy. And if you're going to be a master at that, if you're going to be a champion at that, you can't be a runner and a skier and a tennis player and the ping pong guy and a wrestler and a swimmer and, you know, curling uh, you, you know, you can't, you can't do all of that. You've got to pick your, you've got to go for one or two, either that or you'll be, you know, you, you do okay in a lot, in a lot of different sports, but you'll never be great at any of them. And that's what he's saying. That's how we've got to live. We're striving for the mastery. We're not saying, hey, I participated in 620 sports. <laughs> so that's what we do. God presents to us truth in the gospel. We surrender our hearts and receive Jesus as our Lord, and we're saved. We're so excited, we immediately make changes. Immediately our life begins to change. And we start doing things that are right, and we stop doing things that are wrong. And God begins to expand our understanding and our knowledge to the Scripture, and as that knowledge begins to expand, we get more excited, and there's, and there's more stuff that we can begin to do. But before you know it, there's so much stuff that we start getting blown away, and we have to temper that and choose, this is what I will do in my striving for full growth and maturity. Being able to say no to some things. A lot of people stumble right here. A lot of people know a lot of this book. But you're not able to say no to your recreational activities. You're not able to say no to everything your kids want you to do. You're not able to say no to your personal desires for, for some great level of wealth or achievement or status in your career or whatever it might be. And those are all fine things. But some, for some of you, it's hindering your ability to be fully grown and mature. It's temperance, and it's added to knowledge. The next thing is patience. Patience. The suffering of afflictions, pain, toil, calamity, provocation, or other evil with a calm, unruffled temper. Basically, patience means that we suffer tribulation 
and we learn to endure patiently. We're able to ride out the storm, okay? So it's associated with tribulation. Romans chapter 5 describes it very clearly, verses 3 through 5. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. That seems crazy. Why would I glory in tribulations? Well, there's a reason. We have some vision. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Have you ever known anybody who says, uh, just pray for me, I need patience in my life. And somebody else says, whoa, you don't want to pray for patience. And you know why, right? Because that means God's going to let problems come so that you have the opportunity to exercise patience through the problems. And if you've ever seen that, you're like, I don't want patience because I don't want problems. But he says we can glory in that. Why? Because it develops in us a more Christ-like character. So it's associated with tribulation. The tribulation causes us to develop patience in our life and patience then experience and experience hope. And hope is another thing only on the tail end of patience because as we're going through the difficulty, we can patiently endure. Why? Because we look forward at the hope of what God has for us out in the future. And you're like, I'm not quitting now. I'm going to be diligent. I'm not quitting now because I have hope that it's all worth it. So patience is associated with tribulation in, in cause, but in effect, it, it brings us to have more hope. And that's a great thing. It says in Romans 8 and verse 25, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Can you in your mind just wrap your, your mind around this idea of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church and our catching up with Him in the air and meeting Him and burning away at all the sinful fleshly junk that's been a part of our life in this world and living in glory forever and ever eternity and all that. All I mean, if you can get your mind even slightly around that, then you can endure the difficulty now with patience. You know why people have trouble with patience? You know why people bug out and check out of the ministry or following the Lord and and they just say, I can't take it anymore? It's because they've never developed virtue and then knowledge and then temperance. (laughs) Because when you temper the knowledge and you begin to plug in and you begin to say no to some other things, when the tough things come, you have a certain confidence and you understand you're on this path and you've already seen some things in the Scripture that give you the hope. And you're like, even through the difficulty, I can endure, I can stand, I will not quit and I will not run. I will be patient and I will work through this and Christ will be glorified through me. How do I add patience? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Patience is just kind of your reaction to life because one of my friends says it this way, life is messy. Uh, Life is hard. Life is not fair. And life, all by itself, without your help, will beat up on you especially if you're trying to stand for Christ. And so as you're living your life and you're trying to do these things and you're developing virtue and knowledge and temperance, life is pounding you through any number of circumstances within your relationships, your family and your friends and your job, all kind of different things that are going on in this world because the Bible says this is a present evil world. And just through the laboratory of life, you have every opportunity in the world to choose whether you're going to respond patiently or whether you're just going to check out, whether you're going to be impatient 
You know what the deal is with, with patience? It's kind of interesting. People who are impatient, people who say, look, I want what I want and I want it now. I can't wait. What we learn from this study, they're not bad people, but they are immature. Because maturity breeds patience. And if you're the one that's like, I gotta have it, I gotta have it now, and if it doesn't change, I'm out of here. Okay, well, <laughs> you got some work ahead of you. <laughs> we love you, but you got some work ahead of you because it's a, it's a sign of immaturity, and that's important to understand. Whatever it is about patience, know that you cannot really develop biblical patience until you have already developed some level of virtue and then knowledge and then temperance and then patience. And the fifth thing we see is godliness. Now, my favorite one to study when I went into the details of this study is godliness. And the reason is, is that I never really understood it. Uh, People commonly would give a quick definition of godliness as you take the word godliness and just add K-E, godlikeness. That's kind of the way I was always taught, and that sort of makes sense. But I want to try and clarify this for you. And again, we spent hours and hours and hours studying this, but I'm going to just give it to you in a sentence or two. Think about this. In the basis of what we've talked about already, godliness cannot possibly be defined as just doing right. Because that's virtue. (laughs) And virtue is virtue and doesn't need any help from godliness. Godliness is not virtue. Godliness is something that comes down the road from virtue. Godliness has to do with living a virtuous life over time. And we're going to see that in a second. Godliness is not doing something right. Godliness is being someone that's right. Whatever godliness is, it cannot possibly come into play biblically until after you've established the first four things. I want you to notice a verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2. Talking about things we should pray for, it says, for kings and for all those that are in authority, that we Christians may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So it's associated with honesty in the way that we understand it. Let's try and develop that a little bit. Honesty, and you'll understand this, is a characteristic that defines a lifestyle of continued truthfulness. Would you say that? In other words, if a person tells the truth regularly and habitually over and over and over, you are known for telling the truth. You then earn the title, you are an honest man. Okay? If along the course of your life you start not telling the truth one time, two times, three times, All of a sudden, you are no longer considered honest. Even though you could tell the truth one day and then an untruth the next, yes, you tell truthful statements time and again, but you are not honest unless you consistently and regularly tell the truth. Godliness is like that. When you consistently and regularly make virtuous choices and live a virtuous life of doing what is right, sustained over time, over and over and over, then you can have the biblical label of being godly because that's what godliness is. Godliness, let me say it this way, godliness is to virtue as honesty is to telling the truth. 
Godliness is to virtue as honesty is to telling the truth. In other words, godliness is the status of sustained virtue. So if we make another example of of athletics, we're in 1 Timothy, we go down to chapter number 4, verses 7 and 8. But refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so the comparison is bodily exercise and godliness. And bodily exercise is a great thing, but godliness is better. Okay, and, But that's the comparison that's being made. Now, I can tell you that time and again in my life, on some regularity, sometimes yes, sometimes no, I exercise. Some of you are laughing. I exercise. I do. I, I do some exercise. And, uh, and then there's times I do not. Okay? Uh, it's arguable that I am not fit. Okay, I exercise, but I am not fit. There's difference, right? You know the difference. Now, in our spiritual walk with the Lord, you can do some good things. You do periodic good deeds. Every so often, you show up here. Every so often, you might write a check. Every so often, you may even tell your neighbor about Christ or pray for somebody. But that doesn't mean you're godly. Because godliness is the status of sustained virtue. I would say it this way. Godliness is spiritual fitness. It's spiritual fitness. And obviously God says that's better. That's better than physical fitness. Number six, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness is very simple. Love demonstrated towards other believers. Okay? The Greek word, you probably know this, Philadelphia. That ought to be, that'll be good for you to understand. Okay, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, okay? And so brotherly love is another way that that word Philadelphia is translated. Brotherly kindness in this case, brotherly love. All right, Romans 12, verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another in the family of God with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. And last week we looked at Philippians chapter 2, the first four or five verses about how we esteem others more highly than ourselves. We prefer others over our very own selves. It's being kindly affectioned. The context of Romans 12 where that comes out of is really spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and another class that we teach in our MTT levels, but the spiritual gifts are given, um, they are designed and given to us by God for the express purpose of serving others. You do not have a gift from God in the spiritual realm that is for yourself. Your spiritual gift is to serve me, my spiritual gift is to serve you, and that's how God does it. And so be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 says, Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love another with a pure heart fervently. Again, very briefly. Sincere, how should we love the brethren? We should love one another sincerely, unfeigned, with a pure heart. And we should love one another passionately, okay? Passionately, fervently, with emotion. And listen, I get it. Not all of us are all that lovable. That's why this is step six of seven. <laughs> That's right. This is not always that easy, but this is, this is, here's the point. This is a good point. I'm glad you're tracking with me. 
Because all of us find it fairly easy to love the people we choose. We find it easy to love our families or our friends or the circle of people that are like us. Which, by the way, if you take that to the logical conclusion, if we only love people that are like us, we kind of just love ourselves. Ouch. But if we learn to love others that aren't like us, that aren't always lovable, that's something that Christ does in us. See? That's huge. That's a big deal. That's how we're supposed to love one another. I'm going to jump down to the last one, charity. And those of you Greek scholars out there, of course, the word changes to agape. It's a, it's the highest form of love, often referred to as love. In the King James Bible, it's charity. In a theological sense, it includes the supreme love to God and universal goodwill to men. The ultimate biblical definition will come in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, and you have that list. There's 14 parameters that are just laid out about what true biblical love, charity, is really all about. Suffers long, kind, envies not, vaunteth not itself, not puffed up, doesn't behave itself unseemly, seeks not its own, etc., etc., I mean, just an amazing biblical definition of what true, biblical, God-centered charity is all about. If you looked in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 14, it says charity is the bond of perfectness. Perfect, as it's used in the Scripture, means mature, complete, whole. And so literally, charity is number seven. Charity is the the crowning achievement. Charity is full maturity. It's the bond of perfectness, maturity. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48 is that passage where it says that you're to love your enemies. You're to love your enemies. It's an amazing thing. Because when we look at that thing, we understand that this is the highest form of love. In other words, it's easy to love our friends. It's even easier to love the family of God. We got this in common, okay? But without the qualifier of brotherly before the word love, now like God, we're to love our enemies. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he loved us when we were sinful. We loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us when we were against him. It's the highest possible form. And this is the crowning achievement. So this is the apex of our Christian experience. Listen, you are never more connected to God than when you express charitable, agape love. Never more close to God. You are expressing who He is in His very being. And this life, as we see these seven steps, although very quickly, is when it's sustained, is the life of a true, mature believer. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to take just a few minutes and connect what we just did with what we did last week. And I want to talk about this path being simplified. And so last week we looked at this path of growth, and it's in your notes, these four big circles, okay? And we offer this to you as your path to get on the path and grow with us to full maturity. And so what we did was we set up these four big categories, and we call them to attend, learn, engage, and lead. And what I'm going to do for you and what I've put in your notes for you is just how I see these seven steps as described in 2 Peter chapter 1 fitting into these four big steps that we have expressed from First Baptist Church. 
okay? And so I would compare virtue with attending, okay? In other words, all I want to say is it's just something very simple, something that all of us understand. By the way, in my story, I had no Bible. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says that we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, okay? And we understand that. That's, that's God's command for all of us, okay? But before I knew that Hebrews was a book in the Bible, not just a people group, okay? I mean, before I knew chapter 10 and verse 25, okay, I was, I was newly saved. I was going to church all the time. In fact, I was probably going to more different churches than a guy ought to. And why? Because it was just, it just came to me, man. This is just simple. And so the very simplest first steps is just to faithfully be a part of a family. Do you realize that you pick up some good stuff just by hanging around the right people? Right? I mean, you know you pick up bad stuff hanging around with the bad people, right? Wrong folks. So you pick up good stuff hanging around the right people. So you all just show up frequently and pick up good stuff from good folks. And that's kind of where it all starts. It's a priority. And so here we emphasize the Sunday morning 1030, congratulations, and our midweek life groups. And uh, we went through some of the details of that. But listen, this is the place to start to demonstrate virtue just by knowing to, you know, to do what you know is the right thing to do. The next one is to learn, and obviously that compares with knowledge. That's very obvious. Uh, When we were back in Ephesians chapter 4, and we talked about how God gave the gifts of teachers to the body, Uh, we developed for you a a 9 o'clock Bible study hour. We developed for you this whole system of personal discipleship that's available. And you know what? If if you don't take advantage of that, um, that's just sad because those things are available to you. Listen, we just came out of the Christmas season, and I don't know about you all, but I can't imagine receiving a gift directed to me then I just chunk it and don't do anything with it I just ignore it I just say forget it I'm not interested that just doesn't happen with me (laughs) okay but God's given us this gift of teachers and the ability to understand his word better and to grow and to gain knowledge and yet people seem to just cast it aside like yeah thanks but nah man that's his gift to you man God Almighty gave you that. That's what he said. And so I think that we should take advantage of that. We should study, that we should learn, and we should better understand what his will is. The third one is to engage. And I put the next three under that level of engagement because that's such an important thing, to engage the things that we're learning now into real life. So there's this issue of temperance and making good choices and and saying no to certain things and patiently enduring trials with your mind towards the end goal of hope to develop true spiritual fitness in our lives such that our lives live as an example before others. And yes, we have classes that we call ministry tools and training, and that is not the be-all, end-all of anything. All it is is an opportunity for you to get the why behind the what. It's an opportunity for you to really get handles on what all this knowledge that you've gained already is all about so that you can then in your life go out and make something of it, so that you can make wise choices, so that you can then patiently work through life as you're making wise choices with the hopes of actually being godly and effective in your life and ministry. It's called ministry tools and training because that's all we offer you are the tools and the training. You have to respond. Now, when you look at these seven levels of growth, if you would just notice that the first five of the seven are the five that specifically deal with your personal growth as an individual, your growth will continue in levels six and seven, but really in levels six and seven, they continue as you serve others. And that's why we have the last two, brotherly kindness and charity in the area of leading. 
Because what happens is when you get to the point where you're ready to lead others, what are you doing? You're demonstrating true biblical love, first off, toward the body of Christ. You serve in some leadership capacity in the body. But it goes outwardly even to reaching out to the community and to sharing the gospel with everybody because that's what he has for us. That's his mission. Listen, if you do that, and we look back in 2 Peter chapter 1, there's some awesome benefits. Verses 8 through 11 list for us some awesome benefits that come from living your life grown to full maturity. And among those, it talks about how we will be fruitful. We will produce fruit that lasts for eternity. That is making a difference in this world. We talk about vision that we'll be able to see afar off. We talk about stability. You will never fall. And we talk about amazing rewards, this entrance that will be given unto you as you make it home for your, your great homecoming to heaven. I can't wait for that day. Amazing rewards that come from that. It's God's plan for your life. It's, your, it's His plan for each and every one of you that know Him. It's awesome. It's worth it. I'm telling you. Don't compromise. Don't sell out cheap. Don't let the devil sell you some bill of goods that the latest trinket or toy that this world has to offer can even come close to comparing to the stuff that God has to offer you. I'm going to leave you with one thought and we're done. Don't quit. Wherever you find yourself on this path, don't don't be discouraged, be honest, but persevere. And, And here's the reason. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. There's biblical evidence that if you don't persevere, that maybe you never really were saved in the first place. I'm not saying if you don't persevere, you lose your salvation. That's entirely different. Don't say I'm saying what I'm not saying. But if your life does not continue in perseverance toward the goal, the goal is full maturity and fruitfulness. There's evidence that maybe whatever it was you thought you did when you prayed some prayer a long time ago, maybe wasn't genuine. I don't know. Because in 1 John 2.19 it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt, notice, have continued with us. By the way, can I just say that that's much more than just showing up once a week in a room. Having continued along the path to stretch and to grow. It says, but they went out. Why? That they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. I'm not trying to judge anybody. God's got plenty to do doing that. I don't have to do that. I'm just reading his word and trying to best understand what's really going on, first and foremost, in my life, in my family's life, in my friend's life, and the people that I can influence around me. And man, you do not want to be in that category of people. There are some people in that category, and you just want to make sure it's not you. Where are you at? The path of growth. Last week, I had made some references to the fact that of this four-step process, how I could prove it. We didn't have time to do it last week. I wanted to give you a taste of the proof. I wanted to give you a taste of the proof that God would give us vision, not just how he can use us as we go forward. That's awesome. But maybe first, just what does he expect? And if you're here and you would say, I know I'm saved, he expects you to follow all the steps. He expects you to grow to full maturity regardless of where you draw your paycheck and to be a charitable Christian. 
I want us to pray together. Let's pray. And I'm going to challenge you just to consider yourself. Please don't, in your mind, don't, don't let your mind wander to think about somebody else. Don't let yourself think about somebody, boy, I sure I'm glad they showed up at church today. But just think about yourself and what God's doing in you. Consider what God has taught you already and what you consistently and regularly have demonstrated. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity. And, and likely we, do, we, we have just snapshots of all seven of those at moments. But the sustained, regular lifestyle of my life stops at step number which one? Let's ask God to make that clear to us, and let's ask God to give us some clarity on what we need to do, each and every one of us as an individual before him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your revelation, and thank you for making it very clear to us how you grow up your children. Lord, we just want to cooperate with you. So Lord, I pray for each and every one that's here that they would just honestly and sincerely assess their own life as your spirit has spoken to their hearts that they would receive with joy whatever level they find themselves really at. And then just work with that. Because you love, you continue to offer to us grace and mercy and opportunity to continue to grow. Thank you for that. For some of us, Lord, it might have been a little bit stepping on our toes. Maybe we were deceived, like it talked about in James. We were just hearers of the word only and not doers and deceiving our own selves. Maybe we're deceived into thinking we're at some level that truly we're probably not because, quite frankly, it's not a consistent demonstration of who we are. Whatever the case might be, Lord, the good news is you love us. You're here with your arms outstretched offering to us a fresh start today. And that's what we want to do. So I pray that each and every one right now before you would just honestly lay it before your feet. Repent of anything that needs repented of. Confess whatever needs to be confessed. Clear their hearts and receive your love and determine to make the right choices to move forward, trusting you in all that they have. If somebody's here and they don't know you as Savior, let today be the day that they just surrender their hearts and cry out to you and ask for that forgiveness and that mercy and the gift of eternal life that comes in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would not walk out of here the same as we came in, unless we walked in here, sure, that we're walking in full maturity. <laughs> we ask these things in your name. You know, before we continue, and we're going to... St